From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Sewanee Review Podcast. Hi, this is Spencer Hupp, assistant editor with the Sewanee Review. I'm here at the Ralston Listening Room in DuPont Library on the campus of the University of the South, speaking today with poet Rebecca Wolf. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Spencer. You started a fence a little over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you talk for a bit on what it takes to get a literary magazine off the ground and, I guess more importantly, how to keep it vital? Ooh, what it took to get fence off the ground might be very different from what it takes to get a literary journal off the ground now. What it took at the time was just some gathered enthusiasm of editors and some fundraising. And Fence is a print journal, so we knew we needed to raise money to print an actual physical journal. Well, and I should say, we also needed a shared vision, which we had. And that's kind of what I tell people now. Somebody just the other day was like, yeah, my secret desire is to start a literary journal when I retire and what should I what do I need to know and I was sort of like well you really need to know why you want to start a literary journal because there's really a lot of literary journals and it is a a lot of work so you kind of need to have something that you can refer to ideologically that will be a touchstone that will keep you feeling as though you have to do it but so then yeah pragmatically you just need you know some skills with desktop publishing (laughs) which most people now have and you need to have some money and that's basically what you need who's the we that generated fence and how did you all get together it was a group of i think there were about seven or eight of us and i mean it was quite a funny story really is it it really came out of my enthusiasm i had the idea to start fence when i was just finishing an interim year in a graduate program. And so I decided I was going to leave the graduate program, move back to my hometown of New York City, and start this literary journal. And nobody else was doing it with me. I just had decided to do this. But every single person that I spoke to between the time I had the idea and the time I actually moved back to New York, I just told them about it. And over the course of maybe six or seven months, I accumulated a group of people who were like, that's exactly what I think needs to happen in literary journal culture. And so I want to do that with you. So I just acquired people through this, probably it was like a rolling stone gathering moss. And what was it that you intended for Fence to be that you didn't see being accessed or accessible in the literary ecosystem at the time? Right. There's a couple different sides to that facets, I guess. I did not see much space for writing that was outside of what we then called the mainstream, which was pretty clearly defined at that time. Like if you said to somebody in 1995 or so mainstream poetry, they pretty much knew what you meant. And it meant basically narrative poems that were pretty accessible in terms of their language, sentence structure, formal considerations, and and also that pretended to provide the reader with like a pretty easy epiphany, 
of some kind. They revealed themselves to have the journey, what they would now say, of the poem was, here I am, a solitary lyric speaker, and I'm having this experience, and through the course of my relation of this experience to you, the reader, you're going to be provided with something that's going to feel like you learned something. That was the mainstream poem at the time. And then on the other hand, you had a very codified set of experimentalisms that were being published out of a set of different organized social scenes, basically, that were coming out of different graduate programs. And so the experimentalisms felt very rigid, while the mainstream felt very dull. So Fence was essentially constructed to provide a place for writing that was not the mainstream, but was not signed up, as it were, with the available experimentalisms. And Fence has maintained a reputation as being a fairly avant-garde journal. Mm -hmm. To what degree is that reputation organic? Mm -hmm. Uh, That is to say, do you all subscribe to a particular aesthetic, or are you drawn to what's good out there? Well... I mean, no, we expressly do not all subscribe to a specific aesthetic, which, I mean, so I've always pushed back against the idea that Fence is avant-garde because I'm a little bit of a concrete thinker. So when I hear the phrase avant-garde, I think, right, an avant-garde is something that agrees with itself, that has like a a clear agenda and is fighting a battle (laughs) and kind of agrees what the enemy is, I guess you could say. And that's really not what Fence is about. And so... More often than not, my poetry editors especially, but the fiction editors as well, we tend to, the work that we're trying to do as a group of editors is to learn how to think outside of our own particular tastes slash belief systems and appreciate where someone else is coming from in terms of why they might wish to publish a certain submission. And I think I skipped over like an earlier question that you asked, which is related to this, which is how does fence how how does a journal keep itself vital? And I guess that that's been a big question for fence because we did have this really strong sense of a zeitgeist that we were aligned with in terms of what needed to change. And then when as we set about changing it, it kind of it transfigured into that we had to be careful to not basically just create another set of mainstreams and another set of rigidities. So I feel like that's essentially still what we're trying to do, and that's an effort that isn't over. If I may pivot just slightly, do you ever find your role as editor, publisher, and poet, do you see those roles in conflict with one another, or would rather you say they inform one another, or... Is it shades of both? I tend, I mean, pragmatically speaking, it has been very difficult to continue to write while I do fence. It's just not easy. I think that's more of just a personal identity problem. I always kept have kept them quite separate, the part of me that I see as the editor of this magazine, and then the way that I know myself as a writer. They don't really have much to do with each other, actually. That means that they don't necessarily grow at the same pace, something like that. So currently, my, you know, I don't have a new book coming out is one way to answer that question. Like I've, <laughs> I basically haven't been writing very much recently, which is pretty sad for me and just is a function 
of the kind of effort that doing a press, but also, you know, personal life. Like I have a family and I have to earn money. So those things, but, you know, certainly being the editor of a journal is a wonderful way to continue to grow your imagination around what is important or why what is at the top of the concerns of young writers? And that's still something I'm very curious about. That's mostly what I actually really care about still with Fence is seeing what people who are young are doing (laughs) with their writing. So for you, it's something of a continuing literary education. You could say that, yeah. No, I I love the satisfactions of reading what no one else has seen, Mm -hmm. exactly. And I guess that takes me to the question of, well, not the question, the uh, the fact of your own poems, which I'd like to talk about now, if we could. Oh, sure. Let's start with the first poem from One Morning, mm-hmm. which was released in 2015, which is Arcadia et in S. If you could read that for me. Certainly. Arcadia et in S. Do fever dreams in fever teach any lesser lesson? Traveler, your journey has been long and sectional. Because the thought is discontinuous does not make it, therefore, unshapely. By night, everything seems impossible. By day, by extension, everything possible as water is to oil, and oil is to water, for that matter. Set yourself a project to think of another for the first time. Pause for reflection. As water is to oil, and oil is to water, for that matter. By night, everything seems impossible. By day, by extension, everything possible. Because the thought is discontinuous does not make it, therefore, unshapely. Traveler, your journey has been long and sectional. Do fever dreams in fever teach any lesser lesson? Thank you, Rebecca, for that. Um, There's a really fruitful symmetry at work in that piece. in that the poem kind of redoubles itself. How do you conjure the architecture, or maybe more correctly, circuitry, Hmm. of your poems? That is to say, what gets them built? You know, I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I mean, I, I really don't have a consistent, you know, scheme or plan or practice for how I compose a poem and usually I mean this poem in particular is pretty unusual in that I think what happened with it was that I I saw that the lines that I had for it would lend themselves to this to this mirroring kind of structure so it was one of the few instances where I sort of like imposed a structure on a poem after it was conceived or just made I don't know I still I have no better answer than like I don't know I don't know why why these poems are the way they are (laughs) it's um 
you know, it's, I always find that kind of answer from poets really frustrating and boring, so I'm sorry to be <laughs> still doing it. But it's like, yeah, I tend, especially poems where I'm quoting a lot, which this is one of them. Mm-hmm. So the lines, as water is to oil and oil is to water, for that matter, are literally in quotation marks in the poem. And I do tend to just kind of receive language sure. a lot. And sometimes, you know, in totally literal ways it arises out of a feeling as they do sure Uh, and you know that that is the answer that so many poets would give if i were to ask them that question do you suppose it's the impulse towards feeling or an impulse from feeling that gets you to write i mean i like that idea that it's an effort at feeling that makes more sense to me, given my difficulties with feelings, mm-hmm. <laughs> personally speaking. The lines about traveling, I mean, somebody reviewed this book in a really fascinating way where they basically exposed it for its lack of attachment, you know, like the detachments of the book. I think that's a big impulse for me or a big compelling place to write from is the feeling of detachment and wishing to be attached which I'm sure there's a word in German for that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, the the thing about traveling and being on a journey and being essentially not a part of the thing, but kind of visiting things. It's like being place haunted, as so many writers say they are, but your place is transitory space. Yeah. And I may have just <laughs> pigeonholed you a bit there. <laughs> if that's my epitaph, that would be good. Another fact about your poems is that they traffic in quite a lot of white space. Mm-hmm. So much of the work is in the conversation between the words and the margins. I'm of the opinion that those silences make just as much noise as the words themselves. Hmm. And might I be onto something there? <laughs> I mean, I think you can hear it when I read that I do give a lot of space. Like when I'm actually, there is all that space there. Um, unlike some poets who are sort of like they're really just you know the words themselves. So I think I think the space is just as present, if but maybe not more. It's a place full of hope. It's the place in which I'm hoping that the reader will allow themselves to make connections that I'm not willing to make for them usually, mm-hmm. which is what that poem is kind of about, right? Like because the thought is discontinuous, does not make it therefore unshapely. Um, and I love the ways in which your poems kind of enact themselves or announce themselves because with poetry that some would deem difficult often the clues are you know they're in the poems themselves Mm -hmm. which brings me to another one of my favorites from that book which is applies to apples Mm -hmm. or apple singular I'm sorry if you could read that for me please sure applies to apple which is a poem that I wrote for a couple of friends of mine after a visit uh, that we had. Onion in her cynicism, peel away another layer of apple, the weakest link, rolls down the hill, far from the tree, away and bruised and rotten amongst a bunch, applies to human, applies to endeavor the ruminant remainder goats fed on fallen 
apples make flesh, make apple milk, apple goat meat in apple goat milk, aged and resplendent with spores and cultivars, age-old endeavor of humans on a weekend, visit other humans with their animals, seeding the human web. I've been in it so long. Press of bodies to draw away and press on other areas of apples, of need, of desire to move away from the city famously and even farther away. That's kind of a poem about gentrification, really. (laughs) I was going to ask about those lines away from the city famously because one thinks of uh, moving into the city as a means to get famous, I guess in simplest terms. Mm. Like, where's Broadway? It's in New York. Where's mm-hmm. Hollywood? It's in L.A. Mm-hmm. I don't want to fret that too much, but what's going on there? Well, it's funny. It does go in waves, right? There's, like, waves of movement um, into the centers, and then and then people go... I need to get out of here and get back to what's real, quote unquote, you know, get back to the land, get back to the simple life, get back to being in touch with myself, get back to like the things that matter, get back to, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I I mean, in my circumstances, I'm in touch with many people who are in that other kind of push, you know, it's an ebb and flow, I guess mm-hmm. you could look at it. And so the famously part is actually just my own like total ridiculous self-consciousness where I think that everything that's happening in my environment is famous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my current obsession is with gentrification and the real effects of that on actual real people and stuff. So I um, write about that quite a lot now when I'm writing. I have a hard time not writing about that. And you do see it in like most city centers, a kind of a a thing where people are packing the cities and then there are probably an equal number of people who are fleeing the cities and then packing the areas around the cities and nobody knows where to go. The wonderful reminder in that poem of the word ruminant, Mm -hmm. ruminate, to ruminate or a ruminant mammal is one that has to vomit up its food to digest it. Mm-hmm. And I see that kind of happening in the way that the accumulation of images in the middle of that poem with goats and apples and mm-hmm. how those kind of fall on one another, again, helpfully enact what you're working toward. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, how do you avoid that becoming merely a catalog? Right. Well, I feel like for me, that's always been the question of how how does it how is a poem working or not working like is to what extent are you able to with your sheer authority convince the reader that you know your that you as organizing principle are are like to be trusted in that case with the apples and the goats and everything it's just a that's just kind of a little joke really for me that little clutch of stuff is that what you're talking about sure yeah yeah it's just a funny i was trying to riff on like the products of artisan living i mean it's funny because it's always been a real peeve of mine is um poems where poets just sort of list like names of flowers 
sure. that are really pretty. So I hope I'm not just doing that. I don't know. No, I think why this poem succeeds is because it it isn't merely signposting. It's, you mean signaling? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's a new favorite word of mine. Sure. And what it achieves is it puts things not in a catalog but in motion. Mm-hmm. I think many of your poems do that. Mm-hmm. Do you think of poetry as something kinetic as opposed to static? I do. I definitely do. I I also think that I'm like hope I'm definitely sort of like a crystallizer. You know, I, I'm hoping that's what I'm doing is kind of like creating some kind of um, chemical reaction with the language and the music and the space on the page um, that produces like an ongoing aura for luck, you know, that creates like mm-hmm. some kind of charged ionic atmosphere. I, I love that, that image of poetry as atomic with this field of variable electrons around it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm fretting this line a little too much and I'd love <laughs> to move on to something else. <laughs> and I want to speak about one of the great unspoken joys of reading poetry, which is surprise, mm-hmm. by way of a poem of yours called You're the Smartest Cat I Know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have you read that poem. We're going to chat a little bit about it. You're the smartest cat I know. You make eye contact through the window when you want to come in from a frosty mudroom. You climb up on a screen door and hang there like a bare rug when you want to come in from the sunny porch. You eat the foods you like until you are sick, retching in the hallway, but you will not eat the foods you don't like at all, not one morsel. You make love to your wife's best friend, make her love you, cock and eyeballs, really love you. Then all is awry, loss of you, hole through the wall, fixed erotic absence, hole all the way through the wall. You can see through it. When all is fallen around you, babies crying on the ground, beds empty, living rooms stripped, shit in corners, she opens the door for you, the window for you, the rooms and walls and roof, attic and stairwell and hall open for you. You make eye contact through the window. You have no friends left. You make eye contact through the walls. She has no friends left. You fuck her other friend. There's an uncanny kind of magic in those last five lines, which are much more regular and kind of self-contained than the rest of the lines of the poem. Mm -hmm. And it's terrifically funny. (laughs) It's also very sad. And there's that catastrophe, and I don't want to pun on the word catastrophe, but I just did, um, <laughs> near the end of that poem. So how do, you, how do you find yourself modulating those pitches? How do you make those connections so well? <laughs> Thank you, I guess would be the appropriate answer <laughs> to that. I really, I hate to say this out loud into the microphone, but I don't revise very much, you know? So a poem like this really was just a kind of a an outpouring <laughs> of some thoughts and ideas and surprises me just as much as it surprises the reader 
I suppose is the the true answer to that. Like I suppose it's that I'm really willing to allow myself to be surprised and definitely crave that and sort of just I'm open to it. And that's why it feels that way when you read it. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) 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 And I'm okay with that. Sure. (laughs) Is there a real cat in this poem? I believe that the initial image came, I mean, strangely, this poem is actually a little bit speaking to that poem, for I will, what's it, for I will something something my cat Jeffrey. Mm. Do you know that poem? No. Oh my God. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's an old, you know, it's an ancient-ish poem, for I will something my cat Jeffrey. And it's a list poem, for he, for he does this and he does that, for he does sure. this and he does that, and like all these beautiful marvelous things and I believe I'm blanking on who the poet is but it's somebody who I think was imprisoned actually and only had their cat when we find out who this is you're going to be like oh my god it's that poet well you know everyone's going to be shaming the both of us (laughs) when they hear this podcast (laughs) don't worry it's okay to have blank spots in your knowledge (laughs) and maybe it's just for I will speak of my cat Jeffrey but so I definitely was riffing on that structure um, and I forget if it came from actually seeing an actual cat or if it just was like a memory of something that a cat did and then it just kind of turned into this litany of, you know, morphing. At the time that I wrote the poem, I was basically obsessed with a certain personal circumstance and pretty much anything that I looked at took on the shape and form of that person slash circumstance. This is a funny poem, but the laugh with that last kind of gut-punching line is not a comfortable one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an uneasy laugh, but it's there, and that's kind of an abiding feature of much of your poetry. It's funny, but in a way that is unsettling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, where, where do you think the impulse to write that kind of poetry comes from? I know. I was just talking with my daughter on this trip to Suwani about the unheimlich. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because a lot of times when I do readings, I'll I'll try to allow the audience to laugh at things that I that are actually meant as humor, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I mean, you know, at the risk of banality, like life is very difficult. We are all suffering, and right now more so than recently. And so, actually, that's one of the things I find difficult about writing currently is I don't know. There seem to be competing impulses in society currently to try to sort of like provide escapism or to just really go right there to all of the worst things that are happening and I guess I haven't figured out exactly what to do but I always have been dealing with the things that are not comfortable I guess I have not usually been a terribly comfortable person so you'd rather identify and lay bare those (laughs) incongruities sure Sure. Uh, well, it, it takes the courage to do that, uh, which I thank you for. I'm going to ask you two more quick questions. Uh, the first is, do you have any poems memorized that you'd like oh. to pull out of your bag of tricks? Do you mean poems by me memorized? Oh, any poet in the world <laughs> that are alive. I mean, the only poem I have memorized is a long one. How long? I think it takes maybe three to four minutes. Let's rock and roll. Okay. Twas brillig, 
and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the burrow groves and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes aflame came riffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead. And with its head, he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kaloo kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slyly toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the burrow groves, and the momraths outgrabe. And that was some Lewis Carroll by way of Rebecca Wolf, y'all. Uh, my, my last question is perhaps the most difficult question of all, so I apologize in advance. Rebecca, what's your favorite song? Cashmere, hmm. Led Zeppelin. That's an excellent choice. <laughs> Way longer <laughs> than uh, than Jabberwock. Absolutely. Jabberwocky turned out to be. <laughs> I what? think it's like a five to seven It definitely song. is. It's... it's <laughs> by no means a radio cut but what what draws you to that particular song i don't know just the deep heavy grunginess of it probably mm-hmm. i spent a lot of time like in high school lying in my darkened bedroom listening to that with headphones on it's very powerful powerful experience i've basically i'm like anything with a sledgehammer that you can hit me <laughs> over the head with i'm all about it <laughs> well we'll endeavor to do that later uh <laughs> Rebecca Wolf, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. This was very fun. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Swanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Y. Nana, and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.